trauma, effects of trauma is uh, interrelated, right? Because of the effects of the trauma on the children or adult lead to the conflict, more conflict, terrorism kind of things. And then if you are going there to resolve the problems, right? You want to prevent more uh, problems uh, in, in the communities, then you, you need to understand, you need to know the underlying drivers of the conflict. Hi, and welcome to the 1CA Podcast. My name is John McElligot, your host for today's episode. We're joined by Dr. Narayan Katka. He received his Master of Comparative Law, International Law, and Legal Studies from Delhi University, then received a Master of Arts in Peace Studies and Conflict Resolution from UNC Greensboro, and went on to get a doctoral degree, a PhD in Conflict Analysis and Resolution from Nova Southeastern University. Since then, he's been working at Senior Resources of Guilford in North Carolina in the Greensboro-Winston-Salem area. He has been a program specialist at UNC Greensboro. He's worked at SOS International as a senior social scientist in Kabul, Afghanistan. And the connection that we've had more recently is with fellow interviewees on the 1CA podcast, Drs. Alex Nesich and Patrick James Christian from Valkamir Human Security. And Dr. Kotka, you are a psychoanalytical cultural anthropologist working for Valkamir. So, sir, I wanted to thank you for being in the One Senior Podcast, and welcome. Yeah, thank you so much, uh, John, for this uh, wonderful opportunity uh, to share my uh, experience and my background in the field. We appreciate uh, it. Now, you, you've had a, a connection with civil affairs, with PSYOP and SF forces. We wanted to um, build up to talking about that connection, but give people an understanding of your background. Um, and before coming to the United States, you had lived in Nepal, which is a country between India and China. And there may be some people listening to this who are adrenaline junkies, and they may have seen movies or films about the region, the Himalayas, which is a huge mountain range home to Mount Everest, K2, and many other high and difficult places to climb. Could you talk to us about your background? Were you born in Nepal, and could you describe that culture? Sure. Uh, I was born in a small uh, village of Nepal, which is called Sarankut. Sarankut uh, is in uh, Kaski district, uh, eastern part of Nepal. I was born there, um, uh, and then after uh, 10 years, uh, uh, my father, um, you know, uh, took us to the plain area called Bara, Bara district. It's a plain area, uh, to a different, uh, climate. You know, I was in the cold, um, climate in Sarankot, Kaski. And then when we moved to Bara, it was very hot, you know, hot weather. But my family, um, was, uh, you know, my father was a community worker, um, community organizer and, he used to do the, uh, you know, politics also, and he did a lot of politics and community service in that part of the world. You know, if you do the politics, you're going to be broke, broke out, you know. Okay. And then he had to move to um, Bara district for survival, you know, to uh, take care of his um, children. So we moved there. Okay. And uh, that's, that's our, and I got my um, 
actually high school education from Bara district and came back again to my old place, Pokhara. Uh, I did my uh, law degree from there. Um, yeah, that's the that's the my village. You know, I have background. My you know, I was born in Nepal, and uh, when I was thirty, I came to United States. So I, I mean, you know, deeply connected with Nepal, uh, Nepalese culture, Nepalese tradition, and everything. You know, and, and then learning new culture here. You know, yeah, new home. So, could you describe the 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 size and the culture of your hometown? Was it very small? What does an average family look like? Uh, actually, uh, average families, I mean, their profession, um, everybody, you know, farmers, right? Uh, it, it, it's a hill, hill areas, uh, small village, but it's, it's, it's a geographically very beautiful place. It's called Sarangkur, and from Sarangkur, uh, the tourists, a lot of tourists uh, go to uh, Sarangkur, and they view Pokhara, it's a beautiful city valley. They view Pokhara, uh, from Sarangkot, and, and it's, uh, you know, naturally very beautiful, but uh, economically uh, not that, you know, uh, good. There was no factory, nothing, and majority of the people of Sarangkot, um based on farming, right, farming, and it's, it's very hardship. Okay, um, more like but, uh, what we call yeah. subsistence farming, very basic, trying to get by. Yeah, okay. so that, that kind of, you know, uh, farming, and uh, as you know, the society was divided into caste system, right? So caste. Could you describe caste. that for people? What the caste system looks like in Nepal? Sure. I mean, it's it's a like a, it's a product of the Hinduism, and uh, it's uh, uh, created uh, through the Hindu religion, right? Varna Vivastha, which means uh, the people are divided based on their uh, work. It, it used to be based on their work, right? It's it's a labor division. Uh, the one category of the people called Brahmins, they're supposed to teach, they're supposed to be priests, and they, they consider as a higher class, and other second class, people call as a Chhatriya, and their responsibilities are to take care of the country, do politics, and protect the country. And third category is who does farming and business, uh, provide, you know, uh, the those kind of products, you know, create the products so that everybody can enjoy, uh, everybody can consume, right? And then uh, fourth category was serving class called Sudraj. And uh, those people are responsible to provide the services, tailoring, um, you know, and sewing uh, the shoes, you know, etc. And uh, uh, later on, those classes, Sudras, from Sudras, um, untouchability was created, right? People consider um, the higher caste people consider Shudras as untouchables because they are impure. Um, according to Hindu religion, the, the people, in order to get the um, salvation, moksha, you have to be pure, right? So those people consider impure, that's why they are untouchables, nobody can touch them. So those that kind of caste system existed at that time and still exists. Uh, in uh, Nepal and in India also. And I think if we talk later on, the caste system is the one of the reason created several traumas, you know, in the in the lower caste people okay. in Nepal. When you say untouchable, does that mean actually people do not touch them if they're not from that caste? Uh, 
that you avoid cast looking system. or touching or helping anyone from that caste? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I think a caste system is very complex, right? And the the, the, the every caste category there is a hierarchy too. I mean, there is a level. Uh, within a Brahmins, there are so many levels. Within Kshatriyas, so many levels and Vaishya's levels. And then Shudras also levels. There is a discrimination within that category also. Uh, yes, uh, the untouchable people, untouchables mean uh, the higher caste people, they don't touch, right? Uh, they consider, if they touch, it's impure. So they have to do certain kind of uh, religious um, activities to pure themselves. I mean, somebody touch, touch you, suppose not to touch, right? So there should be some kind of religious things uh, they will do to be, uh, I mean, you know, uh, be pure. So, absolutely that, but, I mean, because of the education and the, I mean, time, this 21st centuries, uh, definitely there, is, there has been change, right? But uh, still un- untouchabilities um, exist in the rural Nepal, in rural India. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, in cities, I think, I mean, people can touch to the untouchable, but still they feel hesitant, even though they are very educated. To some listeners, I think it may sound very foreign and unkind, very unchristian-like, maybe because it's yeah. but it's very different culture. But I think there are even in, in the United States there are terms that Americans may use that have used like uh, hillbilly or white trash or uh-huh. or ways to differentiate um, between you know what neighborhoods you live in or, or zip code that yeah. would indicate how much money you have, how much privilege you may have, whether it's based on uh, your socioeconomic status your race, your ethnicity, your background. And I, I wonder how, in Nepal, how can you tell the difference between someone, when you when you look at someone, can you tell based on what they're wearing or how they act about what the cast uh, they're in? Yes, yes. I mean, uh, because of the, your experience, you are living with them, you lived with them, uh, and you know their uh, behavior, you know their, um, uh, you know, like uh, habits, their... their um, styles, their wearing, clothing, all kind of stuffs. Yes, you can um, you can identify them without asking their uh, last name. So if you ask last name, absolutely, you know everybody knows, right? Uh, sometimes what happens is uh, uh, economy, money may change uh, the situation of the untouchables, uh, sudras. However, in in the, in the society, um, because of that uh, money, doesn't change their status. Uh, still, there will be the um, sudras, even though they are millionaire. Uh, even though um, the brahmins, you can say, like a very poor brahmins also feel that that million millionaire um, sudras is lower than him. And this this is, I mean. That kind of status not going to change. So nowadays, uh, untouchables are um, converting into Christianity and other religion. Uh, so many have converted uh, in reality, in practice, even though they converted into other religion, their status is same. Not, I mean, status has not been changed because the new, um, the people who um, welcome them as an equal, equal a participant of that religion. Christians or Buddhist or I mean Islam, you know Muslim Muslims, uh, they feel that they are separate, they are untouchable. Still, they are 
lower than that. So this is a kind of you know, very complicated um, uh, system, you know, caste right. system. Just, yeah, it's, it's a generational loss. Okay. So, mm-hmm. And so, Dr. Kadiga, you fled Nepal. Was that during the Nepalese Civil War, sometimes called the Maoist Conflict? And could you describe what happened at that time? Sure. Um, yes, it was um, during the Maoist uh, conflict. It is also known as civil war. I fled uh, Nepal in 2002. Uh, um, at that time, I was uh, practicing law, and also I was teaching at Nepal Law Campus, Nepal Law School. Uh, I was teaching international and human rights law, and um, uh, I mean, you know, I was practicing. I was new in the field. But at that time, the you know, when I was fleeing, uh, the conflict was in peak, you know. It was pretty much, I mean, um, intensive, you know. And the, um, uh, both parties were killing the people, right? And civilians were victims at that time. And then there was no uh, hope for the, you know, person like me uh, who can, you know, grow and can practice peacefully. Yeah. Uh, and, and then there was, uh, I mean, it was civil war. So I think that uh, moment, and then I have to decide to, you know, come to the United States. Luckily, I got, you know, visa, and then, yeah, yeah I decided to uh, come. We're glad that you were safe and that you're here. Uh, so it, it sounds sort of like you talked about how there were a civil war. Um, so was your, your physical security at risk, and, and your livelihood was at risk as well. It didn't exist once the Civil War ground everything to a halt. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was not only me. I mean, a lot of, I mean, you know, it was civil war. So um, the people, I mean, normal people, um, people's life uh, were in risk, you know. Right. And those uh, who can, uh, you know, moved, who can go somewhere else, they can go, but those who has no way, you know, to get out, and they will be there, and they they live, you know, as a normal, right, normal people, even though they have a lot of um, torture or trauma or problems. But I, I was lucky enough to, you know, leave. you got out. Yeah. Was that the experience that led you to study the pathology of family and community trauma? Uh, absolutely. I was, uh, as I mentioned to you, I was a lawyer, right? It's, it's a common law practice, right? I mean, you know, our law all based on the common law, you know, and uh, and, and that's uh, different than the community um, community mediation and the conflict resolution, uh, you know. And then when I moved, I mean, I was, I had uh, so many things, right? I mean, in my mind, my experience, uh, what happened in Nepal. Uh, what happened during the civil war, what was the consequences, you know. So all those things, you know, changed my mind. Actually, um, I did not, I mean, some people suggest to me to go to law school, but uh, I thought, no, I'm, I'm not going to law school. Um, I'm, I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to help the people, right, um, the survival, uh, refugees. And um, I, I found a job in the you know, refugee uh, program and started to help the refugees because of that uh, my experience in Nepal and that uh, civil war and you know my study my education my background I was um, I, I was able to change my um, actually interest of uh, study also yeah. so eventually and then my, I did masters in from uh, UNCG University of North Carolina at Greensboro 
uh, it's a general congratulation but when i um, got admitted in you know nova southeastern university for phd degree and then there i, I specialized myself in um, ethnic conflict and you know a trauma pathology of you know trauma kind of things right yeah. And so that was your PhD in, in conflict analysis and resolution. Yes. Um, sir, would you say, based on your research, that you found some key psychosocial effects of trauma that cut across different communities? Like mm-hmm. in Nepal, you talked about the caste system, but what what are in your research? What are some of the key findings that you found from psychosocial trauma and the effects? Yes, uh, I mean, uh, when, so since I was working with the refugee programs and at the same time after, you know, um, after graduating from Nova Southeastern University, I had to start uh, my some research work also, you know, and uh, uh, since uh, as, as a practitioner, I, I had, a, you know, experience practicing in, in the programs, but also um, uh, I, I got the opportunity to do some research in refugees, you know, war refugees. And uh, uh, through um, that process, what we learned is that I was able to compare, right, compare the uh, lived experience of refugees. For example, Bhutanese. I did research with the Bhutanese refugees, uh, Burmese refugees, uh, and Congolese. And through that process, I was uh, I was able to uh find uh two two kind of you know effects actually um within the uh, within the Bhutanese communities because uh, but people became refugees in Bhutan because of the political uh, movement uh, they they wanted freedom from the uh, government um, king king was there and they want to free uh, and uh, they want to free because of their ethnic uh, ethnicity you know, they want to preserve their language and their culture, Hindu culture. And based on that, I think they got persecuted. But the effects were not all refugees uh, were, um, I mean, they did not get uh, torture. You know, they were not the big, big trauma they didn't get, but the, some some of them were like just following the other people, you know. They didn't get the torture, but they followed the communities and they come along with other. So those kind of, you know, effects, uh, the effects on refugees, you know, big traumas and small T traumas, we, uh, we see that. And um, also, I think it, when we did, I did the, I did the separate uh, research with the Bhutanese uh, communities uh, on uh, caste discrimination also in America, you know, uh, when they live in Guilford County, I was looking into how how much they have been changed uh, since they moved to America, and then since they come here, they carry on everything, you know, their culture, their caste system, everything, and still the caste discrimination exists in Guilford County, North Carolina, you know. Wow. The, okay. Yeah. So you're yeah. saying that refugees from Bhutan or some other countries have come to the United States, have come to Guilford County, North Carolina. They've retained uh-huh. their, their home, their native culture, and the caste uh-huh. system, and continue that caste system in North Carolina. Absolutely, yes. Wow. Why? If, it's, our, if that's leading to trauma, is it, do they just do it because that's what they know? Because, I mean, that's, that's what they know. I mean, they are, it's a normal, normal, normality, right? Normative. 
way of their life. Because the caste system is uh, integrated into the religion. Okay, right. Their culture. And then the people who lived in refugee camps in Nepal for a long period of time and they practiced there, right? They practiced caste system and they practiced the uh, stereotype, right? Uh, discrimination. Kind of, you know, if you are a Brahmin, you know. You're at the top, then uh, yeah, why change it? Yeah. Why, yeah, yeah, if you are Brahmin, you are not going to allow um, Dalits to enter your house. I mean, that, that's your um, um, ancestor did, your right. grandfather, father, everybody did, and then you, you are not going to change now. I mean, you know, yeah. so they, they carry on. But it has been changed on, on, on the youth. I have seen um, from my research, uh, we have seen that uh, the youth have changed significantly. I think they are doing the intercaste marriages, right? Okay. The Brahmins, yeah, or a youth Brahmin is marrying to the touch, untouchable, a Dalit. So that's happening. There is some change. But majority of the people still practice caste system and they, um, I mean, based on that caste system, there are discrimination. Okay. Do you think that the direction of some uh, marriages between the caste has led to less psychosocial effects of trauma it could for example could families marry somehow marry out of that that trauma that they've had over the last few generations uh, i think there, there 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 is there is some changes but uh, but due to that um uh, intercaste marriages uh, the, some conflict you know are, are arising also for example um if you are a Brahmin and your son uh, married to untouchable girl, and uh, you are getting uh, trauma, uh, you, you are going to have a stress, and then you are getting the stress, and that those kind of stresses is going on. But uh, it depends. I mean, oh, um, you know, what kind of people you are. If you are a priest, if you are preaching the people, and you you have a trauma, you know, created by that uh, intercaste marriage. But if you are not the priest, and if you are other chetri or something, but I think they are treating it normally, and they are adjusting, and they are you know helping their kids. Folks, you've been listening to Dr. Narayan Kadka of the Valkamir Network, Valkamir Human Security. After the break, we're going to come back and speak with Dr. Kadka about his work with members of the military community and how it relates to civil affairs. The Civil Affairs Association continues to expand its value to its members. The association recently established the Professional Publications Advisory Board and a supporting research library. Founded by the late Dr. Kurt Miller, retired Army Colonel, the CA Association Professional Publications Advisory Board comprises scholars and policy and publications experts to assist civil affairs professionals in publishing papers and articles in established professional journals. As a service to association members, the board also provides a research library to conduct research on academic or professional papers. Check out the website to find out which board members may be of greatest help and request their assistance by emailing the board. This is an amazing resource that you won't find in many other associations. If you're not yet a member of the Civil Affairs Association, go online to civilaffairsassoc.org and join today.
Welcome back to the 1CA podcast. My name is John McElligot. We're here with Dr. Narayan Kotka. Sir, we want to talk to you about your history of working with the military community. Uh, you've done some work with psychological operations. You served as the senior qualitative social scientist researcher with the 8th Military Information Support Group Task Force that was in Afghanistan. And I think that unit is now called the 8th PSYOP Group, which is based at Fort Bragg. Could you talk about your work with PSYOP communities, whether you've done work with civil affairs, tra- uh, whether you've done work with civil affairs units as well, and what kind of training that's included? Yes, um, absolutely. Uh, let me share with you my, uh, you know, working experience with Dr. Patrick and Alex, Dr. Alex. Uh, they were the one who, you know, connected me with uh, that community. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, during the uh, NOVA, it's the end of uh, my uh, PhD degree, and I got a chance to talk to Dr. Patrick, and he suggested to me to join the Volkamir, and then I'm, since then, 2013, he said 2013, since then I'm working with Volkamir, and through that um, process uh, in 2017, 2017, I got um, a chance to... Uh, you know, deploy in Afghanistan and as a, as a qualitative, qualitative social science researcher, um, uh, I, um, I got a chance to work with, uh, you know, a military customer there. Uh, but I was working with the Soshi uh, International, that's the contractor company. And, uh, the job in the, you know, basically it's as a social scientist, we are uh, providing our expertise to the customer. Um, we are not going into the field. We are not allowed to. Uh, we uh, are um, we are doing um, a qualitative quantitative data analysis and uh, producing the reports and uh, presenting that report to uh, military customer, um, you know, uh, military command, you know, commander. And uh, basically, um, it was a, a good experience. You know, I, I was never. But I'm going to work with the military, right? Help, um, or assist military. And we had a different perspective. And even I, from different field, I was working, I'm working with different culture, right? So I, I was kind of, you know, uh, fearful at first going there, but it turned out to be really good. I mean, you know, I was, uh, I was, uh, really, um, impressed by the work military, military has been doing and, and the, 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 in terms of culture also, I mean, it's, it's good culture and, and they were, you know, they were listening to the expert like me and they were um, helping if we needed help. Uh, that way I am, um, I feel it was, you know, good and I'm, I'm and um, that, that was the experience from Afghanistan and, and since after coming back from Afghanistan, I was able to teach at the Fort Bragg. Um, with uh, Dr. Patrick and Dr. Alex, um, in that uh, training, teaching also, um, we are doing actually Asia. You know, my focus was in Asia, um, Nepal, um, uh, Vietnam, Cambodia, um, and then now Myanmar. Uh, and then our other folks focusing on Africa and other part of the countries and then uh, you know you know it was good uh, experience uh, and uh, looks like you know 
the, our customer felt that uh, it's needed. I mean, the, the, the information, the knowledge um, as a conflict uh, scientist, uh, we are, we were uh, providing like to, you know, customers who were um, happy, happy with it. And um, still we are working with, uh, with them and then uh, we hope uh, we will get more, um, you know, more, more work to educate the people. And then that, in that sense, I mean, you know, um, I was happy to do that work because, I mean, you know, I have seen so many conflicts and um, CA uh, folks are going to the field and giving them the information about a specific conflict and specific countries and their culture. I mean, it's a good, good work, you know, and it's a rewarding work. And that way, uh, you know, the CA personnel, military who are going to the specific uh, conflict zone, uh, they will have a better un- understanding about the uh, conflict communities and they, uh, they will better serve to them, right? And, and it was, uh, I thought it was rewarding work and I was learning from this process as well. That's really good to hear. Sir, what would your pitch be to the civil affairs community about why you believe the psychosocial effects of trauma are applicable to the military? Why should the civil affairs community care about it? Okay, so civil affairs community should know the communities and their culture. And if you uh, want to understand the better uh, reality of the uh, conflict communities, the trauma, effects of trauma is uh, interrelated, right? Because of the effects of the trauma on the children or adult lead to the conflict, more conflict, terrorism kind of things. And then if you are going there to resolve the problems, right? You want to prevent more uh, problems uh, in, in the communities, then you, you need to understand, you need to know the underlying drivers of the conflict. Right. That's, That's a good way to frame it. Mm-hmm. So you talked about terrorist organizations. The likelihood, for example, of someone who has experienced trauma to be drawn toward the ideology of violent extremist organizations. What are some of those examples of trauma that may lead someone to be recruited by a terrorist organization? I think uh, um, this is very, very general, and I can answer this one. I can give you the example uh, of Nepal, right? Uh, the Nepal's conflict, there was, it was mostly with the economic, right, uh, poverty, because of the poverty, Maoist uh, concluded that uh, people are poor because there, there was a feudal society, there was a rich um, people and poor people and gap, right? And then in order to, uh, in order to reduce that or in order to uh, um, help the people, they, they need to change the, the structure, the government. They need to change the structure of the government. So, that ideology, I think through that ideology, uh, Maoists actually started their movement. So, it's, it's, uh, when they started the movement, they, uh, they uh, circulate their propaganda among the community and they started the violence. Yes, they started the violence and when their violence became effective, they are, yes, they, they are killing more people, the, the child, or other youth 
they they are more um, intent to join them, right? So because they are seeing the tra- um, the, the trauma, because they are seeing the torture, they are seeing the killing, and that killing, the scene of that killing, images of that killing, made the children or adult. Uh, normal, you know, I mean, it's, it's normal thing and in order to survive and they have some kind of maybe they want to maintain their status and in order to survive, this is growing movement and we should join Maoist. So a lot of people join Maoist and then eventually, I mean, there was an agreement and, you know, and it stopped in 2006 uh, with uh, making agreement with the government. Uh, so Sometimes trauma, traumatized people more tend to join the terrorist organization because they feel that their their identity has been threatened and in order to save their identity. Identity could be a lot, right? And they feel that they have a status in society. For example, I can give you the example, untouchables, where the majority of the untouchables, they join the, join the Maoist army because of their identity, they are. They feel like they are traumatized. They are. They were tortured. They think that uh, in order to maintain their body status, or or I mean, you know, to survive. I mean, they need to join the military, um, uh, uh, Maoist military, okay. Maoist army. So that almost way, like, what else do I have to lose? Why not do this? Yeah. It, sir, it is a, a noble mission of what you're doing. I uh, I wish you the very best in doing it. Thank you very much for sharing your story today. This is Dr. Narayan Kodka uh, from Nepal, now in North Carolina. Uh, he is a psychoanalytical cultural anthropologist for Valkamir Human Security, and he is also refugee program coordinator of senior services of Guilford in the Greensboro, Winston-Salem, North Carolina area. Dr. Kodka, thank you very much for being on the 1CA podcast. Thank you so much, John, for the opportunity. Thank you for spending some time with us. Please subscribe and come back for another installment of 1CA. Until then, be safe and secure the victory.